You're listening to The Tilt Show. Tech in Latam today. The show that tilts Latin American tech to the next level. Next level. From the hottest startups to established businesses and the most up-to-date tips and tricks that surround all aspects of running and operating a tech business today. Here's your host, Neil Siskins. In the last episode, we talked with Bill Davis, who has a background in finance and is currently running a family office. Uh, he has been going to managing for the last 20 years or so. And we come to hear a conversation about managing and about startups here. Hang in there. So, Bill, let's get to, I mean, you've been running a an investment bank, basically, from New York. Have you done any investments in Latin America at all so, in the last so 10 years? I would call them impact investments. I haven't done anything from a that were uh, that were recorded legally and that I expected a return from. So the companies that okay. I saw that I had uh, uh, that I thought uh, needed a little push, that needed a little extra resource. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I quietly attempted to uh, facilitate a little of that just to get them to the next space, but that was it early on. I was going, I was started off uh-huh. with the formal structure that I was going after and, and very quickly realized that at that early stage when I was there, because I brought some of the first VCs with me from Silicon Valley to Medellin downtown to meet the technology companies, et cetera. And one of the things we realized. That- yeah. So how was that like in the early days? So tell me a bit more about the meetings you had with technologists and how you experience that with the VCs. I mean, what I've experienced personally is a cultural difference between the U.S., Silicon Valley, and and Colombia. I mean, it seems Colombians are much more shy to ask for a big amount of money while they still need it. I mean, even if you use Colombian developers, if you want to get an app off the ground, you need quite a significant amount of money. I'm not going to mention numbers here, but you're talking so, a million. So I, I million found dollars. the opposite. I found that the tool set was good and that you didn't need a lot of money. What I found the challenge that I had with the, some of the projects that I thought were that could have gotten traction was that the leadership wasn't exposed to what a global market looks like. So they thought locally uh-huh, yeah. to deliver a local product. And the culture of venture capital is something that's new effectively in the world, except for Silicon Valley anyway. The idea of using someone else's money as an equity investment and that you can burn it to build and to grow your market is, is not a common practice. Most people are every penny that they invest in looking for a return immediately. In order to to to, yeah. and that's what good business practice, sound business practice, has been from you know ages of years of yore. You know that's how that went. So that is the first cultural challenge. And and not only is it happen with them, I had to get used to what that looks like as well, utilizing capital to grow. Mm-hmm. And you know, and and from the community I'm from, that's a big battle that I'm still in the battle fighting today, making sure that we get more access to that. Um, so what I found was that 
from their standpoint, the community of buyers of whatever that they knew was the marketplace that they were going after. Very often it wasn't quantified, but it was small. Even products that I thought had an opportunity for technical technology transfer into the United States, there wasn't a comfort level with the leadership saying, yes, let's do it. Let's go to New York City. Because my goal was to find the best developers, the best companies, the best ideas, bring them back to New York, open up offices in New York, let them do the development and hire people in Colombia, but let's do the marketing and bring the products out into New York City. They weren't ready for that. That was a bit to, uh, oh. that was a bit much. And the, and it was the entire ecosystem from Asi Medellin to Ruta N. You know, they, you know, it was, they were very, and don't get me wrong, and I think part of it was the economics and the hard times and for them trying to maintain a fluid tier of funding. They were also chasing out some of the people like me that were trying to stimulate influence and invest in those companies by having, you know, there's this little underlying thing of corruption that happens there as well with contracts uh-huh. and costs. And, you know, you are told one thing and then um, the deliverable is something different in terms of space and rent, you know, so we all experience stuff like this that made us say, you know what, we don't want to deal with this to a large degree. So those were some of the challenges, the uh-huh. operating environment. It wasn't a friendly place to set up and to do business. And you couldn't control for budgeting for it. You know, don't get me wrong, the budgets weren't high. I mean, the cost was so low, either the normal cost in general in pesos and then the conversion rate kept changing. But when I was there, you know, I was there when the conversion rate wasn't high. I was there when the peso was 1600 and 1800 to one. Um, to, to, to uh-huh. so it was it was a little different. I mean that has doubled and, tri- and tripled almost at one point in time last year during the uh, oil crisis. So it really wasn't you know as advantageous as it is right now. Yeah, if you were to advise like anyone who is you know starting out, they're in the route to Anna, they're burning through their own cash or maybe a little bit you know sponsorship from the government. I believe they can get. $25,000 if you if you are like in one of the programs at Rutana I don't know the number exactly but you know that money goes pretty quickly so so what would you advise anyone looking for outside funding they're looking for a VC or an early stage investor where would you go if you were in Rutana right now if i was there right now as an entrepreneur as an entrepreneur let's say in that ecosystem downtown Medellin, the first thing that I uh-huh. do, I, I, I might go through that path. You know, if, if it's an easy path and I was well connected and, and, and I thought we could execute, but what I would probably do because still the costs are so relatively low, I would spend more time in my networking and communications in Poblado. And because most of the foreigners that are there have some experience building or investing in business. That's how they get the flexibility to even be in Medellin. I would build those relationships. Uh-huh. I would come. I would become part of the uh, uh, what's that group? I mean, the, uh, there is a, a multicultural group for uh, that's international that I'm I'm part of. I can't think of it right now. 
I mean, the AIM Network, the Angel Investment Club? Uh, well, no, is not, there? So, I mean, that's one type of club, but the other is it's just a, a, a it's like a chamber of commerce for uh, foreigners that are coming there, setting up in, in Colombia so that they could because that's where i met my my assistant i met him in that club i can't think it's it's uh i can't think of the name of it now but i would be spending more time uh, in the multicultural clubs meeting more americans and sharing with them you know who i was as an individual and building trust that's the first thing i would do and then as i would look for them to be my advisors in my efforts say hey This is something I'm trying to do. Let's talk about how to make this thing perfect. Do you mind, you know, being my American advisor in making this project work? And then after they, as you find out who has the interest and who's there, then I would walk through and say, hey, you know, I know we're going to need funding. You know, do you have some recommendations or relationships that we can go to to, to help fund the project? Most of the investments that you're going to see at that tier are all small angel investments anyway. And not small angel investors like we see here where they're writing twenty-five to $100,000 checks in order to do a $500,000 to a $1.5 million raise in the early stage. They are checks where you can, where you can write where most of the people that are there that are living, if you're living in Poblado, if you're living in San Lucas where I live, it's like, The re- I was paying New York City rents in San Lucas, where I was living. You know, so huh. if, if you're there, you can normally afford to write the check to fund the first year of a small company by yourself without anyone assisting. Yeah. You know, without anyone assisting. Uh-huh. So I think that's the ecosystem that I would approach on the ground, building my relationships there. The secondary places I would go to, the co-working spaces that are bringing in foreigners that are doing digital work and working there and working with them as well, augmenting the work that they're doing, putting up some advertising that we can assist. We've got this level of expertise. We can do it at a little, whatever that is to build those relationships, uh-huh. get clients, and I would build it out that way. That's the way I would start. And then lastly, you know, as the formal channels with the Ruta Enes and others that are bringing in investors when they come and they're doing presentations. They always had weekly uh, turnover of topics and opportunities there. I would always show up there, ask questions and make sure I've got cards and build those relationships over time. So, um, you know, that's what I, that's, that's what I, that, that's the way I would approach the, the whole thing. Leverage the community of Poblado and maybe even Laurelis to a small degree. But certainly Poblado, uh-huh. I would leverage Poblado and, uh, and, and and that daytime opportunity where most people are enjoying the nightlife. That's what I would be doing in the daytime, spending my time networking and meeting more and more and building those relationships and showing competency and building trust and creating a network of people that could participate. They don't need form, in my opinion, for the small the size of the efforts that are coming out at the early stages. I don't even know if a formal structure is needed for that type of investment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you just need to meet yes. the right people and uh, that are interested and build those relationships and trust. And then I would secondarily mm-hmm. work on, you know, 
saving enough money and uh, ideally, you know, making sure I have some ownership, make sure I've got all the prerequisites to get the visa so that I can travel to the United States and follow up with the people that I've met in the U.S. Um, uh, as, as you walk through and demonstrate success there. The other piece that I think there's an opportunity that they're not doing it at all because Latin America is its own, each country is its own, you know, the borders are real, but simultaneously there seems to be a very slow movement of a cross border transactional approach to doing business in Latin America itself. You know, I would begin to step up. What you mean, actually, what I hear is that, you know, uh, an entrepreneur in Colombia will not cross into Ecuador or Peru very exactly. much, right? It's like exactly. you focus on Colombia and that's your market pretty much, unless you're the size of... It's more micro than that. If you're in Medellin, you focus on Medellin. If you're in Cali, you focus on Cali. Uh -huh. If you're in Barranquilla, you focus on in Barranquilla. Don't get me wrong. You got the big franchises that have extended, particularly when it comes to food, the crepes and waffles and, and other successful examples of, of franchises that have worked. But, mm -hmm. you know, but most industrial work is localized to the communities that they're from. The What I found culturally is that you know, the the most industrious personalities that I've met that have particularly traveled to Colombia have come from Chile. So I find that they're operating mm -hmm. well and integrated well, and normally they come with a little bit more wealth than mm -hmm. so. So I think they found success in Colombia. So that's the way I would personally. Are you saying that the access to Latin America through Chile would be maybe to start of Chile, which is a famous program, right? Apply to there and then, you know, conquer the rest of Latin America through that program. Is that what I hear you say? Or am I so, and that's interesting. So what I'm noticing anecdotally is one thing. Now, if we, if there was a mission to conquer, I think Chile is an entry point. Now, the challenge is, is that most Americans that are there in, 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 in South America, are, it's really most often a lifestyle choice. The lifestyle that most oh, yeah, Americans yeah, want begins in Colombia. It begins in Colombia. So you're going to conquer from where you feel comfortable. So, and that was my whole thing too. I was getting invites to go, you know, different parts of Latin America. Bill wants you to come here. We got this over here. And, you know, this is going over here. And then Nicaragua, this piece of stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to be anywhere else except Medellin. I only want to be in Colombia. You know what I'm saying? I, I like some other places that I go to, you know, but this is where I want to be. So I'm not trying to embrace the grand Latin culture and cross all uh -huh. of the borders myself. It's like, boom, I mean, it's like, well, like you said, I landed in paradise, I went to heaven. It's like, why am I going to leave here when <laughs> everything I want is right yeah. here? So, so those are the challenges of being a selfish American. And you gotta love this, being less ambitious than a young person that has grown up in a Medellin or somewhere similar that can take it for granted because it's what they've known all their life. You understand what I'm saying? So it's different for them. 
I think. Mm -hmm. But once you arrive there and particularly given, you know, the lifestyle experiences that we've had elsewhere, it's like I don't want to take a risk and spend time in anywhere else that is not here uh because it's 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 a waste of time you know it's like i make if i want to make money as an american i can make money in the u.s only so now if i want to live somewhere and make money there and part of my goal is to create impact and i want to see some successes here and if there's a passion or industry sector that is part of my domain expertise that i can add significant value with and create opportunity and I can do it here, then I'll do that. But I don't want to go to another city, uh, another department, another country in order to make that happen because I'll be depressed every day that I'm not in Medellin. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you fell in love in Medellin. You still have the uh, investment bank, as I understand, right? My my question is actually in regards to investment banking, right? What in sort of what round of your entrepreneurial journey, if you will, do you need an investment bank? When is it like interesting? When because I know you guys write multi million dollar checks if you write one and you see it right? Because that's what investment banks do, pretty much. So Today, I've exited the investment bank as well, and I work out of a family office. So a family okay. office is where us old guys go to do our estate planning, make other investments in smaller companies in the industries and sectors that we like and know, and work with other uh, families and trying to create mm -hmm. uh, generational wealth and, uh, and, and participate in the economy that way. So, so that's the point where you start is normally after uh -huh. you go through a, 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 at least one serious exit. In my case, um, I combine resources with other people and we create a multifamily office so that our costs are shared across the family office, but the opportunities are also shared and we get a chance to participate in the new opportunities as a group, as opposed to one single family. Just to break in, maybe it's good if you explain to our audience, because I think not everybody knows what a family office is and what it does. So, um, yeah. So, so what's a family office exactly? Um, because it, it. Yes. In its basic elements, essence, a family office is a structure, a very almost informal structure that is created after You have worked your career, built your business and exited or sold that business. And now you have taken the wealth from that business or in the case with me and family offices, working with athletes and you fulfilled and you've gotten your biggest contracts. And now you're looking to say, okay, I want to take some time off for me, make some investments uh, that will be sustainable over time, but I've got some specific interests from a philanthropic standpoint. I may create my own nonprofit or foundation with a specific target that's giving money away for tuition or save the whales, whatever that is. And then simultaneously, based on the industry that you've come out of or that you are most passionate about, you may begin to write checks in that space to at the seed level to see new companies in that space, disruptive companies in that space, or 
if you're still aggressive, you may be like, I want to build on to this empire that I've had and I've got the old legacy version of this. I want to buy the brand new, the hot new version of this company and run that. So depending on the mm -hmm. amount of wealth you've created, who your partners are with other families like to co-invest with you, you created another structure that allows you to operate loosely and uh, make decisions about the wealth that you've created. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So basically, I mean, I think you explained it well. Basically, you uh, still work in investment, but this time it's it's for individuals or a family or multiple families, as you mentioned, uh, that want to, you know, sustain their wealth, build upon the wealth, or maybe also do philanthropy and impact investment uh, here and, and there. And impact investments has become the the mode of the day in terms of uh, where a lot of families are looking at allocating capital. So uh, uh -huh. they, to say, they want to say, you know, not only do we want to make money, but we want to do something good in the world too. So we want to focus on sometimes the environment, climate change. We want to focus on some social disparities and inequities that they're seeing in the world. And on the back end, they may want to focus on the governance portion of, of what's mm -hmm. happening. So, so that's that's the uh, the mantra of the day is uh, impact and ESG. Well, I mean, it's it's the mantra of the day, as you said. I think it's fantastic. I mean, and I think, as you mentioned, like athletes particularly. I mean, they well, I want to you know impact uh, the world. Basically, those that are successful, like the the Phelps of this world, the Serena Williams, those kind of people. Yes. Exactly. Those have, you know, family offices. Just so I mentioned a couple of people that are known in the world, right? Of course, in uh, yeah. Medellin, we have uh, James Rodriguez, right? I mean, that's the best yeah. soccer player in the world, I think. Do you yeah. agree? So, no. <laughs> well, I don't know if he's, well, so, yeah, I, I mean, in Argentina, they would disagree. And I'm sure in Brazil, they would disagree. But I'm not going to fight that battle. That's worse than having a political discussion. <laughs> Yeah, so any other tips that you have for somebody who is, you know, currently in Rutana? I mean, are you planning next year on coming down to Medellin and and are you also hosting events? Let's see what happens uh -huh. with the pandemic. Um travel is, everything is up in the air. You know, the wife and I just finished talking about you know, what travel plans may look like or not look like and what the risks are and, and, mm. and how we need to to operate in that regard. So uh, but I'll say this <laughs> as soon as the window opens, I'll do awesome. My best awesome. So we're definitely going to meet <laughs> sometime in the future, I guess, because I'm also looking to go back to Medellin. Right. All right, Bill. So uh, send me a note where I, I will send you my Moreno Grande song, which will give you a good feeling of what uh, Medellin has meant to me and the creativity that Medellin has brought out of me. I had never written a song uh -huh. in English until I oh, went great. to Medellin and wrote a song in Spanish. How's that? Yeah, so that's passion. That is amor. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, 
Well, Bill, thank you very much. I mean, it was fantastic having you on our show and, uh, you know, hearing from, from your investments as well as your early days in Medellin. Yeah, I mean, I hope to get you on the show, you know, another time, another day. Um, hopefully, maybe we can physically have our next event, you know, face-to-face, and we'll do the uh, podcast in the same room. I have my fingers crossed. I have my fingers crossed. It's a pleasure, and uh, we'll connect again soon. Thank you for listening. All the information about this episode you can find in the show notes. Head over to www.tilt.show. Thank you.